lovers, welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and our guest today is Lisa Kelly. Lisa is a laboratory animal science professional with over 25 years in the field. She's worked in both private and public sectors, and she's been very involved in organizations that support laboratory animal science professionals and animal welfare. Currently, Lisa's pursuing a PhD in adult education, and her research interests focus specifically on how adult education theories can be applied to the field of laboratory animal science in order to help support these beautiful heroes through the emotional intensity that often characterizes their work. Our discussion today will focus on the different flavors of compassion fatigue that research folks and others who care for animals and people experience as they selflessly serve others. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm really, really excited about the opportunity our listeners have to learn a little bit more about this uh, topic that a lot of us don't talk about, and we should, especially now in the midst of this pandemic. So I think maybe the first question I ought to ask you is if you can just give us a basic general description you know, of what compassion fatigue really is. Well, first of all, let me thank you, Cindy, for having me and for allowing me a space to talk about an issue that's so incredibly important to me. So compassion fatigue is a form of like secondary traumatic stress or, or a form of PTSD. And what it's really characterized by is, are these kind of physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion issues, particularly, you know, in people that witness suffering. Now, it was first recognized in hospice nurses. So, you know, these nurses, they were regularly caring for dying people, people who uh, had terminal disease, which is certainly, we know, a very hard thing to do. But what researchers noticed was these nurses, they were really struggling. They were struggling mentally. They were struggling emotionally. You know, they had the sadness, which is expected, but also, you know, irritability. And it manifests itself in lots of other ways, too. You know, chronic fatigue, insomnia, headaches. You know, maybe these people were uh, gaining weight or losing weight and maybe just kind of overall poor self-care, poor patient care, right? So that those researchers began to kind of look at what was going on with these nurses, and they labeled this term compassion fatigue. So in more recent years, you know, we have applied this term to the laboratory animal science industry. However, you know, I believe strongly that this issue is even more pronounced in our industry. Um, and I think it's impacting the physical and the emotional well-being of our laboratory animal science professionals. And furthermore, I think it really puts our laboratory animals at risk. So I think it's really imperative that we conduct more research on this issue. We need to understand what the people are actually going to. We need to give them a voice, right? And I think when we do that, then we can begin to develop the uh, interventions and the psychologically safe spaces that will allow people to really be able to deal with this problem. Yeah, I mean, I agree completely. And I think it's very interesting that... Um, you spend so much time thinking about this and and that makes me wonder you know how did this this topic of compassion fatigue become so important to you 
think I have to, you know, to kind of go back all the way to when I was in college. You know, I was really interested in the time in, in becoming a veterinarian. That was my goal. And so I decided to at first volunteer and then was eventually hired by this small animal veterinary practice. And I had um, been taking care of this beautiful little boxer puppy. And um, he had parvo. And when I came in to take care of this puppy, I immediately knew it was very, very bad. So I called the veterinarian and, you know, he said, they said, we're going to have to euthanize this puppy. You know, he's suffering. We've got to do this. You know, and I broke down by the time it was over, just absolutely brokenhearted uh, to put this little puppy down. And so um, I think that was my first experience with euthanasia. Now, I studied that practice many years and um, I had a lot more experiences with euthanasia. And, you know, I learned to to kind of hold it, right? To understand that I was kind of an angel of mercy, right? That we were doing what was in the best interest of these animals and we were doing it as lovingly and as compassionately as we possibly could. And so um, I graduated and I was actually looking for a job, right? And I found this small biopharmaceutical company and they were actually looking for someone who had some vet tech or veterinary experience. So I decided I would go there for an interview. I was really excited about this company because they were working on rare and orphan diseases and the animal model was primarily the chicken. I went out, didn't have a lot of money, just out of college, bought a really nice, beautiful suit, right? And then at the end of the interview, uh, the man that was interviewing me said, hey, do you want to go meet our birds? It was kind of warm out. And I, again, was in high heels and I was in a really nice suit. And so I went in and it was just kind of overwhelming, the smell. And then it's also a really noisy place, right? And I was a little taken back. And then the floor between these, these chicken cages was kind of, it was kind of dirty and it was a little moist and, and there was a lot of poop. And I remember thinking, oh my heavens, I'm going to, I'm going to fall down, right? And I'm going to land in the poo right here in front of this guy. So right about then he takes a chicken out of the cage and he says, do you, do you want to hold it? So now he hands me a chicken and he asks me, well, you know, how do you feel about euthanasia? Do you have any experience with euthanasia? And I assured him, oh, yes, yes, you know, I've, I've had to participate in euthanasia for years. You know, I understand sometimes it's necessary. So he says, you're okay with it. And at that point, he grabs the animal and he cervically dislocates the chicken right there, which is, you know, um, a very humane death. The American Veterinary so uh, Medical Association says it is a humane way of euthanizing chickens. It is very fast, but I have to tell you, to be completely honest, it is extremely visceral. The, the animal flaps. That's just nerve impulses. Um, you know, the head, of course, is hanging. And, um, and there's a noise when it pops. And, you know, standing there at that moment in my high heels and my suit, I really, I thought at that moment, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm going to pass out. <laughs> if I'm going to pass out, I'm going to, I'm either going to vomit or I'm going to pass out. I'm not sure which, you know, I got really hot. I ended, I remember I ended up reaching over and grabbing. I didn't care if I stuck my hands in the poo. It didn't matter. I just had to grab something to keep, you know, keep me upright. And I felt in kind of the deepest part of me, right? Again, I still knew this company was doing amazing work and they were the hope that, that a lot of people were holding out for. 
So I kind of made my way outside, um, got some fresh air. He thanked me. I, I left. I went home. And I was offered the job. And, you know, the first few months, one of the first things he started doing was, well, we have to teach you um, this, you know, cervical dislocation, this manual type of euthanasia. And I had to be really honest, I avoided it. And I wasn't supposed to. I knew it was part of my job. But, you know, when people would teach me, I would kind of, yes, see, I'm not very good at it. Could you do it? So I was doing pretty good and had started doing surgery uh, for them. And we were in uh, doing surgery in the basement of this of this little house. They had set up a surgery suite and they had hired a new surgical technician. So it was just she and I, we were down there um, doing surgery on this bird. And um, when we opened up the bird, the bird had an infection uh, in the reproductive tract and, and made the animal not suitable for the type of surgery we were doing. So she looked at me and said, well, you know, we need to euthanize the bird. And I haven't been trained. I know you have. So we took the, the bird off um, anesthesia and I um, tried to do what, what I'd been trained to do. And it, it just wasn't working. And she's looking at me like, what are we going to do? And I'm trying. It's not working. And so I just did it really, really hard just to try to make it happen quick. And I actually dislocated the bird's head from its body. It was absolutely absolutely horrifying. I screamed, you know, dropped the bird, screamed. I'm just crying because at this point, I don't know what else to do. I'm just kind of standing there crying, looking at it on the ground. And so we cleaned up and kind of went home, um, got a shower and just tried to to kind of process what had happened. And, and I realized in that moment that I wasn't doing any animal, any sort of service if I didn't know how to perform euthanasia well. You know, the animal welfare depended on me knowing how to euthanize and that my attempts to avoid it were for me. They weren't for the animal. That's what really hit me. And I had to get better at it. But I will also say through the years of getting good at it, I do think I got some detachment. I was never cruel. I was never mean, but I do feel like emotionally I removed myself. So Years went by and I eventually changed jobs and, and I actually uh, moved into a training position where I wasn't um, performing euthanasia on a daily basis. You know, it was the rarity for me, which which was nice for me. But I was trying to help other people who were lab animal science professionals. And I realized, wow, they're kind of struggling with the same thing I was struggling with. And now I'm in the position of being the person that's supposed to be helping them figure out how to deal and navigate through these issues. So, you know, how do I do that? And I remember one time there was a, a gentleman who, who was really having a hard time. He was not following correct euthanasia protocols. He was um, being harsh with the animals and he was continuously getting in trouble. And, um, and I think my first thought was, you know, he's just not a very nice guy, right? And to censure and punish him. But when we really did some digging, it turned out to be a compassion fatigue issue, right? This man had a young baby at home and he was really struggling with uh, euthanizing newborn rodents. And he was struggling between euthanizing them and then going home to his own newborn baby. It wasn't he was a terrible human being. It was somebody who was struggling with compassion fatigue. 
as I stepped back from doing it myself and started looking at others, I realized this was an issue that was affecting lots of people in our industry, right? And then I went on, I joined an organization called the Laboratory Animal Welfare and Training Exchange. And they started talking about compassion fatigue. They started talking about something called the cost of caring. And now I finally had some language, right? Some language for my experiences. So I knew I had a name. I knew what was what I had been experiencing. I knew what others were experiencing, but it was kind of wrestling with this whole idea of how do I define myself as someone who loves animals and yet someone who takes animal life. And then I had what I think I would call my kind of um, disordering dilemma, right? I had this experience that really cemented my commitment toward working uh, to address compassion fatigue. Um, and this is a really hard one for me to talk about. I apologize. But I think it, it's really important for people uh, to understand. My youngest child, um, he got very sick. He caught a virus, but he wasn't getting better. His fevers were getting very, very high. And the uh, doctor decided to put him in the hospital. And his temperature was getting up, uh, gosh, probably like over 106, and it was, um, he was beginning to impact his organs. And, um, and I was, I mean, as a mother, it was, it was absolutely devastating. And he was a little guy, you know, just um, preschooler. And I remember the night in particular, um, the doctor came in late, his doctor, and he sat down beside me. And he's, I mean, which I knew was bad, right? The doctor doesn't come down and sit beside you, you know? And, um, and he said, um, Lisa, if, if he doesn't get better, you know, by morning, if, if we're not seeing any progress, we're going to, uh, we're going to get a helicopter in here and we're going to fly him to uh, a major children's medical center. And I remember his words. He said, um, we're going to do everything we can to save your little boy's life. I remember that was the moment I realized that it could turn out really, really badly. I'd be mean, really badly, you know, and, and to say I was scared is an absolute understatement. Um, I was petrified. So uh, he said, but you know, there is one treatment. I've been talking to some doctors there, and then they have this medication that they think we should try. And I don't want to wait till morning, so I've um, sent somebody several hours drive. I've sent somebody to, to get it and to bring it back tonight. And we're going to try it tonight, and then we'll, we'll fly them out in the morning. And, you know, I wasn't going to sleep. I mean, at this point, I mean, I'm not going to sleep, you know. And so I'm, I'm watching um, I'm watching his monitors. He's kind of fitfully sleeping. And um, and they had hung this this bag of medicine. It was it was late, probably nine o'clock at night. And by this point, it's you know, I'm sitting there watching and it's probably, I don't know, two or three in the morning, you know, the middle of the night. And um, and his temperature had been uh, like one hundred and six point seven. You know, and I looked up and it was like one hundred and six point five. And I thought, oh, at least down a, a little bit, yeah, every little bit. I mean, just, you know, and I remember talking like, come on, just a, a few tenths more, come on. 
because anything above 106 is particularly dangerous for his organs, you know, and just come on, can we just get below 106, you know? And, and I, I think I got up and went to the bathroom. I came back. And it was like 106.3. And I thought, wow, okay. And so I sat there, watched over time, and, and it took, you know, minutes to hours. And, but every few, we'd drop another temp or I'd drop two temps. But by the time it hit like, 105 and then 104 I was absolutely sobbing you know I was I I knew the medicine was working I knew I would take my son home and and I think at that moment I realized that 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 medication at that point in time was my miracle and there is nothing, I mean, I've never prayed that hard. There is nothing I wouldn't have done to get that medication for my little boy, you know? And I realized that all the people that made that happen, I would never know their names. I would never know where they worked. And it wasn't just one team that created it. It was years of research, years and years of research with people learning, you know, protein pathways and and how this organ worked or how this, you know, impacted something else. It was years of research and countless people and people who had taken care of research animals and people who had cleaned cages and people who had washed glassware. And every one of those people made my miracle happen. Everyone. And I owed them a tremendous debt of gratitude. And I realized that they were heroes. They were my heroes. And I was committed at that point to doing everything I could to try to help them. So I decided that I would pursue my master's degree in education. Was there something I could do to make um, these laboratory animal science professionals okay, right? Um, and that was my view on change. You know, what could institutions do to make this better? Right. That's a very positivist view. As I began to work on these master's degree classes, I took some adult learning classes and they started talking about things called constructivist theories. And those are those are really, really different than positivist theories. Right. And um, this is saying that truth is constructive. Yeah, my truth is different than your truth, Cindy, that's different than the people listening. You know, we all have our own truths, right? And those truths are, they're informed by, you know, our, our experiences in our life, the culture, certainly that we grow up in or that, that we surround ourselves with. But each of us kind of creates our own truths. One of the philosophers that I really, really liked was uh, a Harvard developmental psychologist by the name of Robert Keegan. And so Keegan talked about something called our orders of consciousness. And so what Keegan theorized was that as people grow and learn, um, you know, from the time that we're born, we developed bigger, broader, more inclusive ways of meaning making. You know, we're really little. We are our parents, right? We're, we don't see a separation. By the time we're young children, we're an extension of our parents. We know that we're not the same human being, but we pretty much, if you know, if mommy likes it or daddy likes it, I like it too, right? And then, and then we get a little older and we realize, wow, 
We can have our own opinions. And then eventually, most of us make it to what Keegan calls the socialized mind. We learn to take care of each other. We learn that our actions can hurt other people and we get socialized so we can operate and exist in a social environment. But the the problems of, of modern life are too big and too complex to be solved with a socialized mind. We have to develop bigger, broader, more inclusive ways of making meaning. And Keegan says we have to be able to hold two truths. We have to be able to know that sometimes it isn't one or the other. Sometimes it's both. And that's when it hit me. That's exactly what we need in laboratory animal science, right? We need to be able to hold two truths. We need to be able to understand that we can be both someone that loves and values animals, that is a compassionate, loving human being, and also someone who has to euthanize animals, who kills animals. Because after Bryce's incident, I couldn't deny the fact that the work that we do to create medicine is critically important. So that really, really resonated with me. And I I stuck through it, got my master's degree, and then started pursuing um, my PhD. And I moved to really focusing on adult learning, because I think that's where it's at. I think that's where we can find the kind of support that we need for issues around compassion fatigue. I found this one article by some Canadian researchers, Terry Whiting and Colleen Marion, and they were looking at PTSD and veterinarians. And through their work, they said, you know what, I'm, we're not sure this is PTSD. We think, think it might be something called PITS or P-I-T-S, perpetration-induced traumatic stress. And that, that just hit me like, okay, now we're talking. Um, now, Pitts was first studied in large degree in soldiers. So soldiers that um, go overseas and they're fighting for their country and they're taking human life. They're doing it for all the right reasons, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't cause them psychological trauma because they are the ones perpetrating the acts. And aren't we in laboratory animal science the ones perpetrating the acts, right? Even if it's for very good reason, just like it is with these soldiers, we're the ones doing that. So I really now am focused on more complex ways of meaning making in laboratory animal science professionals. You know, I'm really interested in knowing whether if they had these more complex ways of holding truth, are they better able to navigate issues around compassion fatigue or what is probably pits, right? A perpetration-induced traumatic stress. You know, and and if that's true, if it's true that having these uh, more inclusive ways of making meaning help people, then how can we support that, right? How can we uh, build the social networks that make people feel supported uh, through these struggles? And it's an issue I care passionately about. Well, that's very clear. And uh, I mean, gosh, I really, really appreciate you, you know, sharing so much of yourself and your personal story with our listeners. Um, 
I love what I'm hearing here from you, and it's the first time I've heard it from anyone in our field. When it comes to compassion fatigue, you're sort of highlighting nuances or varieties of compassion fatigue that really depend on the field you're in. Can you share with us your thoughts about how the experience of compassion fatigue varies, um, you know, among medical professionals and clinical veterinarians in the, in the public realm, and then farmers who raise these animals and, and care very much for them and then send them off to slaughter? I'd be interested to hear what you, what you have to say more specifically about those differences across those fields that experience a lot of trauma and sadness in normal times. Yeah, I I think the first thing I want to say is I have tremendous respect for all of these industries, you know, and and I certainly don't want to ever uh, give the impression that I minimize um, the emotional struggles of any of these industries because these are all loving, caring professionals. But, you know, I think with the medical care profession, you know, these people are obviously they're working really hard, um, but they're not causing the issue, right? They're not perpetrators. And I think it's worth mentioning, they have very high public regard. They are an angel of mercy. Now, veterinarians, um, I think, again, held in pretty high regard. Most of us like our vets, right? And again, you've got that kind of angel of mercy thing, right? We're only euthanizing animals for their welfare because we love them, because we want to do the compassionate thing. So, again, not really a perpetrator. Now, agriculture, I think, um, I think it gets a little more difficult uh, to define. I think there's kind of two different layers in agriculture. There's kind of production where they're growing these animals, raising these animals, and and there's meat packing uh, where they're actually processing or slaughtering the animals. And at least most of the people I know, and I know a lot of people that work in the agricultural industry, this is something that's been kind of handed down to them generation after generation. So the culture that they're embedded in supports what they do, right? Being a farmer is a good thing. I mean, being a farmer feeds people. And there's something, again, the public kind of accepts about that. However, I do think there's probably more issues around that kind of perpetrator-induced um, traumatic stress than there are in, say, the medical industry or veterinary industry. So I think in animal-based research, you have public censure instead of public support, right? So, in fact, you know, I would go so far, Sydney, to be really honest, to say we have almost kind of a public gaslighting, right? I mean, we're, there is not a, a good connection in the public's mind between animal-based research and medical treatments. When most people think about medical treatment, they think about doctors, they think about nurses, they, you know, maybe occasionally they think about pharmaceutical companies. They don't think about the animal-based research that made it happen. Even though almost every major medical advancement in the last hundred years relied on animal-based research. I know back when I was working in small um, biopharma, I didn't want to tell people what I did because I was afraid that they were going to look at me like I was a terrible person. You're going through all that and you can't even really talk about it. So I think, um, I think pits is the right term for these people. And there's just a, a lack of awareness in, in general terms of all the things that these people make possible, like this current COVID crisis, right? Um, and the fact that all the treatments we're relying on to kind of save us, to get our lives back to normal. Those 
treatments were only made possible because of the many years, many years of animal research that have been going on. So I think there's some real fundamental differences um, between those groups, those veterinarians and agriculture and medical, not to say they don't have their own struggles, but I do think there's something very unique um, and very concerning about compassion fatigue in our industry. Thank you uh, for, for that explanation. I think it's very powerful. And, and I think you made really clear the nuances, you know, during normal times of, of how various professions uh, experience compassion fatigue. And I definitely see the distinction with respect to where you would apply the PITS model, um, specifically to our folks and maybe in some cases the ag folks. I'm wondering if you can now extend what you've said into how your feelings about the nuances of compassion fatigue and which models are appropriate shift in the context of of this pandemic situation we're in because there's a lot of emotional suffering going on out there. Oh, no doubt, Cindy. I mean, it's been awful for so many people in so many ways. Um, certainly for our medical community, right? You know, I see these television shows with these ICU nurses and doctors talking about they may have to ration care. Because, you know, when you begin that rationing of care, then you do begin that kind of pits thing, that perpetration, right? So I didn't let Mr. Smith have the ventilator because I thought Mrs. Jones had a better chance of surviving. So did I cause Mr. Smith's death? That's that's pretty awful. Now, talking about horrific, and, and I won't lie, you know, um, the the recent ventilation shutdown of ag facilities was, was way up there with awful. Maybe you can describe it. I'm not sure all of our listeners know what, what actually happened, if you don't mind. The way most agricultural facilities work is you, you take animals, you raise them up for a certain amount of time, you have factored in how long you're going to feed them, and then how soon they'll go to slaughter, and kind of how soon your next batch will come in. That's how they have enough money to feed the animals from sending animals to slaughter. So these um, agricultural facilities faced a huge challenge when our meat packing plants shut down because these animal producers could not send them to the slaughterhouses and neither could they afford to keep them and feed them. So what were their choices? And they have a lot of animals. You know, they kept going around one by one, calling in the vet to, to euthanize each and every animal is just amazingly expensive and, and difficult. So they made a decision I do not envy, you know, but they made the decision to euthanize using a ventilation shutdown um, and basically, you know, depriving these animals of, of oxygen and um, and doing a math, mass euthanasia that way. And, and after that's over, there were, you know, there were people that had to enter these facilities um, and um, euthanize anything that, that wasn't already dead. I imagine that that experience was extremely traumatic for the veterinarians involved, for the producers involved, for the caretakers involved. So yes, I think there's a tremendous chance that these people are going to be suffering some of these same sort of pits issues, you know, that they're going to have these manifestations of, you know, what's truly their grief. 
I'm currently participating in an American Veterinary Medical Association work group. And, you know, we're taking a look at the psychological impacts of humane endings. And I know that uh, one of the first things we're looking at is the effect of mass euthanasia events, right? Our own people certainly have not been immune, right? This pandemic has caused lots of euthanasia events in research labs across the country. Uh, I was really fortunate, you know, where I work, this wasn't as big of an issue as it was in a lot of other places, but I have colleagues, I have friends, I have people I love very much that have been uh, really, really, really impacted. Uh, This issue was primarily an animal welfare issue. So, you know, a lot of these institutions uh, that house laboratory research animals Um, They were closed. You know, they were closed by state law or local law. And lab animals need daily care. You know, they have to be fed. They have to make sure their waterers work. They have to be watched in case they reach a humane endpoint. And there's just not a skeleton crew that can maintain all those services for a full facility. So I think really hard choices had to be made. I know that at, at one point, some um, people referred to it as we need to to euthanize all non-essential animals. Wasn't that the term they used, all non-essential animals? Yep. Yeah, yes. Just very unfortunate terminology, yeah. It is because every one of our research animals is essential, and they're all valuable, and they're all beautiful, right? All of them. It's certainly essential if you have cancer or your loved one has cancer. It's still really, really valuable research. It's just not the research that was focused on the pandemic, and unfortunately, some animals like that, you know, had to be euthanized. But I can tell you that there is no one, no one more upset about this than the laboratory animal science professionals. I mean, these are the people that care for these animals every day. That loss had to seem incredibly pointless. I mean, they didn't get to fulfill their vital mission. You know, they didn't at least get to, to say to themselves, well, maybe this will save someone's life. We certainly didn't want animals to starve or not get treatments. I think that's cruel. Euthanasia was a a better choice, but it wasn't an easy choice. And it's one that, again, our laboratory animal science professionals are are carrying the burden for. Right. And that's what we discussed in the last episode, in fact. And and they have to carry this, this horrendous pain, and they really don't feel comfortable sharing it with anyone. You know, and as you've said, it's not something that most of our institutions are equipped to handle either, right? We're still just t- starting to talk about this, just starting to break into a deeper uh, reflective understanding of this. Um, and this is mainly why I think this particular episode is so valuable. And, and I think you're really, really onto something. And I think it's going to be very meaningful and powerful, you know, for the laboratory animal field. But I also think that people that are listening to this episode that are connected to some of these other uh, fields that we've discussed, medical, veterinary, ag, um, will benefit from thinking about this as well. And, and maybe maybe folks will look into this PITS model of uh, understanding compassion fatigue. Um, and so that leads me to, um, I guess, another question I have. What are your goals for how we can actually address compassion fatigue more effectively for the, you know, the research animal care folks? You know, I'm not sure I know, but I do think the first step is acknowledgement. And, you know, that acknowledgement must be at the institutional level, certainly. 
But I think it also has to be at the society level, right? We, we need more transparency. We know our public is poorly informed. So, you know, I want to thank you for doing podcasts like this, because I think that when we talk about these issues, that's what brings that awareness. That's what brings the acknowledgement. Because once you start seeing that acknowledgement socially, I think then you begin to think about the issue personally. And this is an incredibly personal issue. So we need the people that are going through this to be able to bond with others uh, that are having these same struggles. You know, because ultimately we need these individuals to be able to hold two truths, just like Robert Keegan talks about. They have to hold the truth that they are amazing, caring, loving, compassionate, good human beings. And they are also occasionally the perpetrators of animal death, even if it's for a very good cause. You know, there's a price to be paid for these medical treatments that we depend on. And at least personally, I don't think that this burden should just be theirs. I don't. I think any of us, any of us who benefit from medical treatment have some kind of responsibility toward animal-based research because animal-based research is what makes it possible. So everyone you know, has a responsibility toward uh, supporting these people that are doing so much for our world. Yeah, uh, very beautifully stated, and I, and I couldn't agree more. I just love the two truths way of thinking about this, because uh, we attract people who love animals. We want people who love animals because we want those to be the people who care for them, um, especially when there's so much riding on it, right? Um, you know, we're talking about whether or not you know, the people out there that are struggling with disease uh, have something to look forward to, right? You know, we're talking about providing them with hope and our emotional investment is just so intense and, and really, really difficult. And, and I'm just so grateful to you for you know, finding you know, a calling in this. I think it's, it's particularly um, pressing right now. And, and hopefully people will actually hear what you've said and really start thinking about this deeply. Um, before I let you go, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? You know how incredibly important I think the work you're doing is. And I think your message is incredibly powerful because it's incredibly honest. It's, it's getting real in, in the truest way, getting real and recognizing the humanity and the beauty in all of us and, and our shared love for research animals, all animals, and our shared love for people. And I think we can agree on that with lots of people that will be listening to this podcast, right? Lots of individuals out there who love animals and who love people. So if I have any parting words, it really is just a, a plea to people to get educated, you know, to not get their facts through propaganda, to, to do their own research. And I don't want to to tell them what to think. I want them to, to be brave, to engage, to ask difficult questions, you know, to ask themselves, do I love animals? Do I love people? You know, do I want medical treatments? Do I think the price is worth it? These are personal questions. These are questions that don't have easy, clean, neat answers. You know, there's, when I mean, we're living in a lot of gray and understanding the complexity, I think that's what will build our compassion. And when we can build compassion, 
in our institutions, in society, not just for animals, but for each other, then we can develop the sort of resources that will be necessary to support these heroes. And and that's my goal. And that's my hope. Lisa Kelly, so powerful and so loving. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself with us today. I think it's clear that many folks will continue to need our support even as we enter the recovery phase of this pandemic. And you've given us all a lot to consider. Additional resources related to compassion fatigue can be found by clicking on the episode response link in the lower right-hand corner of my webpage at getrealpodcast.info. Now, listeners, let's switch gears for a moment. I want you to imagine what it feels like to watch a young child suddenly become so sick that she may die. I want you to visualize her weak little body in her hospital bed. Imagine the fear in her parents. Imagine the heartbreak. And now imagine you know her and she's so sick and you're terrified, but she doesn't die because of a medical treatment that keeps her alive, but cannot cure her disease because there is no cure for her disease yet. And relapse is always possible. Imagine living on that roller coaster. How cherished is hope by this young person and her family? This is Livia Anderson's story, and she and her father Brian will share it with us all on the next episode of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I'm super grateful to you all for joining us today. I invite you to send me any questions or comments you have about this episode or animal research in general. You can reach me through my website at getrealpodcast.info. You can also keep up with announcements about upcoming episodes and commentaries I may make between episodes by following Get Real on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. So please check in regularly. We'll talk soon. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. Come on.